The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. All right. Looks clear. Good. Not the day you had in mind, is it? What do you mean? As I recall, we were to give you a tour of these old trenches where the front used to be. I was given strict orders to keep you away from the front, but the front came to you. Well, I guess war never turns out the way it's supposed to. Nothing does, lad. The sooner we realize that, the more bearable life is. Mortar! That's all right, lad. We're all afraid. Accept it. Use it. I'm not afraid. I'm just startled. I'll take over for a while. Sergeant giving you a hard time, is he, Yank? Not really. Pity. Been giving me a hard time for the last two years. Thanks to him, I'm still alive. You want a good story, Yank? Write about the sergeant. Sergeant, trench cuts close to the forest, about a thousand yards along. Trees should be safe for cover. Oh, good. All this sun is ruining my complexion. Rutherford, your turn. Unless you'd rather give it a try. On the spot research for whatever you're writing. I've never fired a gun. Lucky you, Yank. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, November the 8th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. It has been a shameful nine years since we last commemorated Remembrance Day on our show, and given that this year is the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I, 1918, we thought that now might be the most appropriate time to make up for this shortcoming. In fact, our show today will be the first of two parts of our Remembrance Day reflections that we will be sharing with guest Salim Mansour, Western University's Associate Professor from the Department of Political Science. Salim, thank you for joining us on this special occasion. Thank you for having me. And we'll get our discussion right underway as soon as we remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and, of course, all of our archived broadcasts. Well, amazingly, Salim, here we are. It's 100 years since the end of World War I. Remembrance Day for Canadians will be on the 11th. So we took you up on your suggestion that we do... Part one of the show, based mostly on the end of the European age and dealing with events going up to and surrounding the First World War. And part two, our show that we'll be doing next week, will be going more into the Second World War period and thereafter. Yeah, I think, I think this is uh, quite proper, uh, Bob, for you to uh, arrange this conversation and to have a two-part to it. 
World War I in more ways than we can cover, I suppose, in this first hour was uh, the beginning of the end of the European age. And so what do we mean by that? You know, what was the European age? How did the European age make the world that came to, in a sense, an end in 1918? And the second part would then be the world that we are living in the aftermath of 1918, a second war that happened uh, 20 years later. And as uh, time recede, and as we look back, as, as history advances, and as we look back, we can almost say that the Second War, the 1939-1945 War, was an epilogue of the First War, 1914-18. Mm-hmm. Well, it was interesting because the last time Robert and I discussed this issue, we called our episode Forgettance Day, not Remembrance Day, because so many people seem to have forgotten the true significance of the wars. It's a continuum, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Past lives with us, and we live in the past, and then that is the ingredients with which we then move forward. It is, in some sense, a sad, sad commentary in our world today that our children, our students in the schools and colleges get insufficient education about Uh, their past. For instance, uh, we are Canadians and we are around this table in some sense, need to reflect upon where and how Canada came about. And in some ways, the Great War, World War I, was the moment in which Canada came into its own. People talk about the Battle of the Waimee Ridge, where the Canadian soldiers fought and died, and they fought and died as Canadians, and that was the moment, you know, through blood and gore, that a sense of identity of who we are, separate from our mother country, that is Great Britain, because the Canadians were divided in in the war of 1914-1918, just as they would be divided in the war of 1939-1945. The division was again between English Canadians and French Canadians. English Canada rallied around the flag, while the French Canadians did not, and they opposed it, you know. So Mm. if our children and if our citizens don't know that history, they don't know that how much of the art of politics of the past century among the great statesmen of Canada, I mean, Wilfrid Laurier came to his own during that war, you know, was the effort to keep the Confederation together, given those disputes. So there there is a sadness, and I hope that at this moment around the country and around the Western world, as people reflect upon when they put on their poppies, you know, the famous poem of John McRae about the Flanders field, when they put on the poppy, why are they putting on the poppy? What are they remembering as your opening question goes, you know? What do the poppies signify in terms of us in Canada, in the Western world, in terms of democracy, in terms of freedom? And in terms of the end of the European age, this is what I begin with. It's interesting that you refer to it as a European age. We're talking about Canada. For example, Newfoundland, anyone who was fighting in the war at that time was under the British control, so to speak. Well, actually, Canada was a lot under British control. Canada did not voluntarily, if you will, enter the First World War. 
We were uh, involved in the First World War de facto because Great Britain was. We did not oh, have oh, control over our exactly. foreign policy, so neither I'm, did Newfoundland. I'm just wondering if that fits into what Salim's theme is, the end of the European age, because it was sort of the last tentacles that Europe physically sort of exercised over Canada in that sense until we became more independent, right? Not only over Is that part of yes. the bigger picture? Yes, and, and let's reflect upon it. It was not only over Canada... Uh, the European age meant the dominance of Europe over the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Britain ruled, as I said, the sun never sank oh, okay. on the British Empire. I have to laugh, Salim, because here you are, a man born in Calcutta, speaking English here in Canada, and the only reason, really, you speak English was because of British imperialism. Exactly. So it was it was an age, that's what I mean, the a- end of the European age that, that came about as a result of the first world, first world War, was the age that Britain and other European powers had come to rule the world. It was, in a sense, the white man's age. I mean, the famous poem by Rudyard Clipping, the white man's burden. So in Africa, in Asia, all the way from, say, New Zealand and the Pacific Islands to Canada, the sun never sank because somewhere the sun was at midday uh, at some point as the sun traveled across yes. the various meridians. Uh, I would also remind, remind you and through you, the, our, our audience, that we talk about First World War, but it was for the generation who went to war and the generation after, the political leaders, the statesmen and others who reported on the war. It was the Great War. Mm. It just happens to be that 20 years later there was another war, and so that then came to be defined as World War II, and so the Great War became World, World War, War I. I. Right. <laughs> but in 1914-18, when, when the guns of August began firing after the assassination of Archduke uh, Ferdinand. Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary, by a Serb nationalist, Gavrilo Princip, it was the beginning of the Great War. It was the greatest war in, in that sense at that time. They called it the war to end history. all wars. Pardon? They called it the war to end all wars. It was a war to end all war. And I, and I like to point this out to my students. Great wars in history are punctuation marks uh, when one age comes to an end. And then in retrospect, another age begins. So the Great War of 1914, which erupted, nobody anticipated, by the way, that this war would last for four years, that this war would consume millions of dead, that this war would bring in people from the colonies to fight for the white man, Mm. the British brought soldiers from the colonies, men who were enlisted from India. Over a million and a half Indians came and fought. By the way, Mahatma Gandhi was in the, in the Great War. He was with the ambulance service. And so the Indians came, Australians came, you know, uh, New Zealanders came, Canadians went, Africans, you know, uh, went to the war on behalf of the British Empire, on behalf of the French Empire, on behalf of the German Empire, you know. So it was truly, in that sense, the coming together 
coming together in the sense of all races who came into this cockpit of a continent, Europe, and fought for the next four years. Uh, what began in 1914, people thought by Christmas they will be back. There was a lot of hoopla, there was a lot of hooray, there was a sense of patriotism, you know, they're going to war and it will be all over. And by the time the war ended, nobody knew. You know, when Eric Maria Remark writes that famous book, All Quiet on the Western Front, the quiet that came down on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, it's called the Armistice, you know, there was an armistice. Nobody knew why they had, in the first instance, gone to war, you know. All of that thing was lost. There were six empires when the first guns of August fired. There were six empires, the British, the French, the German, the Austro-Hungarian, the Russian, and the Ottoman that went to war as allies. Artillery stopped, that's a good sign. Unless it means a place is crawling with enemy soldiers and they don't want to hit their own. You go to school to become a journalist? Columbia, New York. So what would your finely educated mind suggest we do? Should we take our chances in the trenches or would that forest be a safer bet? Well, in the trenches we can't see you coming for us. At least with the trees for cover, we could see in all directions. <laughs> exactly right. Good to have you on the team, lad. I'll take the advance. What was Rutherford's first name? Dunno. Dunno your name either, Yank. Don't intend to find out. Makes it easy to forget when you're gone. Well, maybe that's why I'm here. So people won't forget. People always forget war. That's why we have so many of them. I won't let them forget this one. Who are you to tell people what to remember? You've never even fired a gun! Never looked a man in the eye after he's just killed your best friend in a foxhole right beside you. All this war is to you is just research for some book you're gonna write someday. I don't need to know your name, Yank, because I already know exactly who you are. So leave now! If you're so keen to die, Yank, I can save the enemy the trouble. My name is Ned Malone. You're my job, Yank. This whole bloody war is my job. So go! Tell Haskell to send the medics for me when you get to command. Jones? Enemy soldier in the trench. He made me leave. You did the right thing. But he died. For what? So that you could live. Now you were going to pull yourself together. And you were going to give those soldiers the respect that they had you. How? 
by living your life as if it means something. We're being educated here about the causes of the First World War and how these six empires clashed. And in my reading of the causes of the war, a large part of it was due not just simply because an archduke was assassinated by a Serbian nationalist, but because there were a number of alliances between these empires and their satellite states that started a domino effect to allow this um, house of cards, if you will, to just collapse in this great uh, perfect storm. Can you explain the alliances and why? Because a Serbian killed an Austro-Hungarian and why the Russians came in, and then why the Germans came in, and then why the British came in, and they all just sort of piled on top of each other in the European sphere. Yeah. One of the metaphors that is used is the gunpowder had all been packed up, and Mm -hmm. it just waited for an ignition, and the killing of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austro-Hungary was the ignition uh, that that burst the gunpowder into this massive explosion that led to what I'm calling the end of the age of empires. So the six empires that were there uh, at that time basically not only dominated Europe, but they dominated uh, the world. The world was in a sense parceled off between the six empires. The most powerful of the empires was the British Empire that controlled the sea, so to speak, and had the largest amount of land under its flag from New Zealand through Australia through Malaysia into India. India was the crown jewel. It was a continent of a, what you might say, a country, but it was it was a continent. It's called subcontinent. Then the Middle East, then into Africa, North Africa, Egypt, and so on, all the way into Canada. Then there were the French. Then there were the Germans. The Germans were just coming into the age of the empires. The 1880s and 1890s were the age or the era that was called the scramble for Africa. And Africa was divided up into portions that were taken by each of these empires under control. Then there was the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire controlled North Africa and what is the modern Middle East. And then there was the Russian Empire, the Empire of the Tsars, that controlled what was basically Eastern Europe and went all the way across what the Eurasian landmass into the Pacific Ocean. Now, when a great war, as what we now in retrospect know, that was the Great War, erupts, it happens because no longer the politics of the age can be handled diplomatically. Things have reached a point when diplomacy crashes and then erupts the war. Everybody thinks that they can handle it. The world had become divided, that the empires had become divided. There were alliance systems. So there was a dual alliance. The dual alliance was between France and Russia. The dual alliance was there. You can see, if you imagine the map, France on the Atlantic Ocean, Russia controlling the Euro landmass. Right. So the two at the two edge of the European continent. This dual alliance was there in a sense to contain the German and Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, from expanding and challenging. 
Britain was like a balancing power, whether it will support the dual alliance or whether it will try to negotiate with the German and the Austro-Hungarian to maintain a balance in Europe. The Ottoman Empire was what was called the sick man of Europe. It was, in a sense, a dying empire. And the question was, you know, when somebody dies, who is going to inherit the inheritance? Mm -hmm. So (laughs) Britain and France had kept the Ottoman Empire towards the end of the 19th centuries going and alive because they didn't want Russia to have access into from the Black Sea into the Mediterranean because the Ottoman Empire controlled it. Ottoman Empire was in a sense allied with the British and the French. But by the time we come to the period leading up to the war, the Ottomans had turned against the British and the French and had made an alliance with the German and the Austro-Hungarian for all sorts of reasons. And so, and so the Russians were against the Ottoman Empire. Anyhow, there was, these were the alliances. On the one side were the Russians and the French and the British coming in. On the other side was Austro-Hungary and Germany, and the Ottomans were going to decide where they were going to join up. And it was the split of the alliances that led to the combustion. I must add one, one other thing, which I want to bring on the table, and I hope we can expand upon it. Just about all the prince and the royal heads of Europe were the nephews and grandnephews and grandnieces of Queen Victoria. I was about to mention that, Salim, that to me I marvel at the interbred and inbred family yes. that controlled all of those empires. I'm yes, not sir. sure about the Aut- Turkish Empire. Apart was there from any the re- Turkish, yes. Yeah, apart from the Turkish Empire, all the other empires were ruled by basically a, a, an interbred and inbred family of my, squabbling my mo- cousins and nephews yep. and nieces and uncles and aunts. My mother, <laughs> my mother, who, of course, was born in Hungary and, and moved to Germany. I was born in Germany. She always said, listen, the French and the English and the Germans, they're all cousins, <laughs> right? In the sense, the royal heads, yeah. the rulers. Right? Right. I mean, Kaiser William was a nephew of Queen Victoria. And, 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 and you can see the sibling rivalry taking place. Mm. I mean, if you want to trace back in, in, the, in the cultural or theological or historical sense, you can see it goes back to the children of Adam, right? Cain and Abel. When so the, a, there, was, there was this rivalry. When did the royal family of uh, Britain change their name to Windsor? It was after the Great War. And it was because of the shame of the Great War, because, because the they German were identified as German. The German connection. Yeah. So, so for Kaiser William, I mean, why, why was this hostility that emerged? That is, for the Germans, and under Kaiser William, he wanted to become the great naval power. And he was challenging the dominance of the British Navy. And Britain was not going to allow that, you know. And so as Germany wanted to come up and become another great empire, to have an empire, you would need a fleet, again, to have access to the open seas. And so that became a rivalry. And that is what tipped the British on the side of the French and the Tsar. And the Tsars were related to uh, Queen Victoria. So in that sense, the Tsars were also related to the German. So behind the empire, there's something else happening, which we can look back. It is the rise of nationalism. 
That's very interesting because what I found out about the the First World War is that it is a war that should never have happened. There was no ideologies at at war here. This was pure and utter uh, hubris on the part of the royals. Well, if I may, if I may, this was saber rattling and jingoism. But but they also represented the rising nationalism because the Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. Chancellor, the great Chancellor of Germany that united Germany into the modern state was Otto von Bismarck. And Otto von Bismarck had gone to war against the French and defeated the French in the war of 1867, 1870. So you see, the rise of Germany was German nationalism. There was soon after that the rise of Italian nationalism, the Risorgimento that created the modern Italian state. Then came the rise of Serbian nationalism in the early 1900s in the making of what later on would become Yugoslavia. Serbian nationalism was challenging the Ottoman Empire and the Hungarian Empire, which was allied with the Germans. But the Serbs looked to Russia because Russia was orthodox. You see, the Tsar was the head of the Orthodox Church, and Serbians were Orthodox. So the Russians were protectors of Serbs, and a Serbian nationalist had killed an Austro-Hungarian crown prince, you see. Mm -hmm. So the crown prince were related, but underneath them was a rising tide of nationalism and nationalist sentiment. So... World War I was the first sign of what would then we now know with the end of the European age will become the age of the nationalism, first in Europe and then in the rest now, of the it's world. It's interesting you say that because I'm looking at my trusty encyclopedia here that said chief among the causes of the First World War, and they gave four. One, clashing interests arising from the growth of nationalism, just as you said, belief in the pursuit of power politics, the development of military alliances, and the race for armaments, economic rivalry, which sharpened hostility. But this was interesting. The basic idea behind these is that war was a legitimate instrument of national policy. Did they think about war that way? War has, it all goes all the way back to ancient Greece, ancient Persia. Wars, as I said, are punctuation marks in history. End of an age and the beginning of another age. The end of an age... Each age has a dominant power. In our lifetime, 25 years ago, when the Berlin Wall collapsed and the end of the Cold War came about, what happened? It was an end of an age, Soviet Union collapsed. You know, the Soviet Empire collapsed and disintegrated. We saw it happen. This happened in front of us, you see. So yes, whether it is a war that turns bloody or what came to be defined in the age of the dominance of the Soviet Union and the United States, the Cold War. Mm. Luckily, no shot was fired between the United States and Soviet Union, but wars continued. There's another aspect of the First World War, the Great War, that I think is indelibly etched on the minds of people, and that is its horror and the technological aspect of the war. Because prior to that war, a lot of the wars and conflicts were fought on horseback with sabers, or at the very, at the most, rifles. And I can understand why war would be a tool in the toolbox of politics, because they figure that it's just going to be a skirmish over very quickly, as you said earlier, Salim. 
And then with the rise of being able to drop bombs from the air for the first time, with the age of machine guns and chlorine gas and trench warfare, the likes of which have never, ever been seen before, um, that element of technology brought a whole new aspect to the Great War. Look at uh, Sir Winston Churchill, the great prime minister of the Second World War. His career begins as a cavalryman in India and then in Boer War. He then becomes the first Lord of the Admiralty during the Great War. So he is the head of the British naval fleet, you know. And his career ends with the atom bomb. So in one man's life and his service, he began as a cavalryman. Wars were fought on horseback. He sought to the rise of the British Navy. In fact, he was responsible for switching the British Navy from coal-fired engine to oil, which leads to the rise of the importance of the Persian Gulf, which Britain controlled. Then, he's the guy who also designed the tank. So World War I began with horses, ended with tanks and aeroplanes. You know, it is the first war in which uh, aerial combats took place. It, it, it's an element of impersonalization, isn't it? When you can drop a bomb from the air and not see your enemy, when you can lob artillery filled with chlorine gas and not see the, the harm that it does, and when you can um, drive over people in towns and houses in a tank and not really see outside the mess that you're making, <laughs> that impersonalization is also a, an element that uh, was unique to that particular period. Sharpshooter, he's moving closer. Never fired a gun before, have you? How's your arm? Mills bomb. Wait for me to reload again. Pull the igniter pin. Four seconds. Four seconds. Outstanding pitch. England could have made a damn fine cricket player out of you. You know, I say beat you to it. I'm already a damn fine baseball player. You can circle past them. I'm not leaving you here for them to find. You're only endangering yourself. Yeah, but I'm saving you. Get up! It's all right, Sergeant. We'll be safe in here. You won't stop the bleeding, man. You need a doctor. <laughs> too few, too far. Those soldiers you saw in the woods, they'll find this bunker sooner than you think. What you need to do is to take these papers back to command so our lads are ready for the enemy advance. We'll take them back to command together. I gave you an order, soldier! I'm a civilian, remember? That's right. I'm supposed to protect you, and you're the one who nullified that sharpshooter. I didn't nullify anything. 
I killed another human being. That wasn't human, lad. That was the enemy. Don't confuse the two. Maybe if we kept reminding ourselves that the enemy are people just as we are, there would be no more war. That's a fine and noble sentiment. And the only reason you can think that is because Jones and Rutherford and thousands of young men just like them died to give you that freedom. I appreciate their sacrifice. I know they did what they had to do, but this is the 20th century. The time for war has passed. Not for you, it seems. You took that grenade and deliberately killed that sniper before he could kill you. You killed to save yourself and me. That's war, lad. That's not different at all. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it is possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. And we're in studio with Celine Mansour in a commemoration doubleheader dealing with Remembrance Day and World War One. Yeah, um, what Robert was mentioning about the impersonalization of war, about technology. World War One, we enter into the modern age in, the, in that sense, a great war. The, the, the sense of where technology was going to or how technology was going to determine wars, and therefore politics, uh, uh, we, we saw, that is historically, when we, we look back, we saw that with the American Civil War. It was the first war of industrialization uh, uh, and and the coming of what was going to be the future. In World War One, that future was very much present. You know, the, the explosives, the poison gas that was used, TNT, I mean, Alfred Nobel's great discoveries on, on this matter, and the the horror and the abhorrence of what he witnessed that turned it into the the uh, awarding of Nobel Prizes, uh, Peace Prize to end wars, you know. Uh, well, the struggle carries on whether we're going to end wars, but all the other uh, dimension of it. So yes, I mean, technology has always been in that sense. I suppose you can go all the way back to Bronze Age and then the Iron Age. Well, it's interesting you say that because I recall historian and writer Isabel Patterson from the 1930s when she was analyzing the causes of the war, and she referred to the fact that the European structure of politics was not able to accommodate the increase in energy, as she put it, of the Western world, which now became industrialized, which was able to produce goods in a way that was not possible before, and that most of Europe and the rest of the world was not set up for sort of a free market kind of a society, and that that was what caused the clash, and that was why the countries, well, like the Western, the most Western countries, became so advanced, because they, they had a freer play of economic freedom within them relative to the other nations. Would you agree with some of that? Or? Well, I mean, as I said, the European age, the European age is the beginning of the modern world. But, but, but is that technology but, itself, like Robert was mentioning, part of the cause of that change? Because that's a very good point you brought up, Robert, the impersonalization of the war. And, 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 and you brought up that people weren't expecting the war to be that long, Salim. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, um, the cause of the war, as we discussed a little while ago, has many, many aspects to it. Each war, uh, each great war in that sense, have their own specific causes, you might say. But in a generic sense, in a general sense, world has been shaped by wars and you know as i as i mentioned so you you go back to the greek persian wars you go back to the wars of alexander the great you go back to the wars of the mongolians the chinese khan on and on and on the world has been shaped you know but the wars were fought by the technology of that moment mm-hmm. in time the coming of the european age is the birth of the modern world and the Great War was, in that sense, the Great War of the modern world, of the modern age. And the modern age is defined by its technology. I mean, each age is defined by its technology. So the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and so on and so forth. So what was the modern world? I mean, the modern world is the beginning of industrialization. But I was going back to how and where the European age, and I've been mentioning this several times, how would we bracket it if the world 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 War One or the Great War is the beginning of the end of the European age. Where does the bracket, the first bracket is? I would suggest the first bracket would be the birth of the European age is with the age of discovery, Columbus's discovery of Americas, you know, 1492. He did not know that he had discovered America, the pathway, you know. He no. was going towards India, you know. But he was part of what is known as the Age of Discovery. And these were the Europeans, whether it was Vasco da Gama, whether it was Magellan, whether it was James Cook and others who came after Columbus. They were all trying to circumnavigate the world, knowingly or unknowingly, find a way to the east by going west, Okay. That is the birth of the European age, you know, because that brings the Europeans into the world picture. Yeah, the whole world global. And it wasn't particularly because of a thirst for conquest. It was a thirst for trade. It was a thirst for trade. It was a thirst curiosity. It Mm -hmm. was a thirst for wealth, you know, uh, the spices of the East, the precious metals of the East, you know, gold and so on and so forth. So the human motive, and this is where historians or ideologists go so terribly wrong when they reduce the human motive to one singular factor. Human motives is a complex of things, you know. I mean, the famous line from Christopher Marlowe's poem about the Trojan War, was this the face of the woman that launched a thousand ship or or, Mm -hmm. or lines that, you know? Beauty, you know, love, and so on and so forth. Glorification. Sir Francis Drake was knighted by Queen Elizabeth, but he was simply a robber. A gang robber. He was sailing in the Atlantic Ocean, robbing the Spanish galleons coming from the Americas with gold, right? So, (laughs) Perhaps you could answer a question for me, Salim. Why isn't Canada's contribution to the Boer War uh, remembered for its atrocities on November 11th, much as all the other wars that we've been involved in have been lumped onto that day, November 11th. Great, uh, the Great War, the Second World War, North Korean War, um, our contributions perhaps even to the Vietnam War. But the Boer War seems to have been totally neglected, even though Canadians died, 267 Canadians were killed, and there were atrocities performed 
during that Boer War, which Canada should not forget. Yeah, we should not forget, and it has not been forgotten. But Boer War was a very controversial event in Canadian history. Wilfrid Laurier was a prime minister. The French had no interest to go and fight for the British Empire. For whatever reason, the British Empire got involved in a war against the Afrikaners in southern Africa. The French were not interested. This was, a, this was the first crack in the Confederation. And the English Canadians wanted to go to war. They demanded to go to war. And the compromise, if I recall, that Wilfred Laurier worked out was, he said, okay, those who want to go to war, the Canadian government will help ship them, but Canada would not go to war. So the people who went to war, I believe the numbers were something like 7,500 English Canadians who volunteered. So they volunteered. They were volunteers, and, and the Canadian government shipped them off. Nobody went from Quebec, or that is from Lower Canada. That issue would then come to haunt later on World War I, you know, with the conscription crisis. Laurier was no longer the prime minister. It was Borden who became the prime minister, and that was the first great issue, uh, constitutional issue, confederation issue that erupted. Well, what, should we forget uh, the atrocities of is, that time, or, or, or are they worth war, remembering? Wars are atrocity, but wars are also, I mean, let's, let's not forget about it. I'm not trying to glamorize it or romanticize it, but, but people went to war. There is something about human nature that, that people mm-hmm. have a desire or instinct, individuals who go to war, you know, and are prepared to go to war. I just wonder how many... And I think that personal element is highly significant in the literature of the Great War, if you look back upon it, you know. Mm -hmm. The the number of poems and poetry, I mean, John McRae's poem, Flanders Field, that has become, in a sense, the anthem of the Great War. Safer in the trenches? Safer back in Brighton Beach. For that private, you take the advance. See you around, Yank. Remember to spell my name right. There's a sniper out there! How's the weather, Rutherford? Should have brought my brolly, Sergeant! Brolly, that's an umbrella to you, Yank. I know. Private Jones, give Rutherford a hand, would you? But there's a sniper out there. We'll surely kill us unless we kill him first. Here's your brawly, Rutherford! Clear! Come on, lad. Now it's safer in the trench. Come on, go. the enemy they'll come at us from all sides forming lines of oblique fire from there and over there take a look 
It is the enemy. Where do we hide? We don't. We're on the front lines now. You cover that side. We'll form a crossfire. This will be our killing ground. Not the terms you're used to, is it? You'll do fine. Whatever happens, this has to get to command. Tell me you understand. I understand. Tell me you'll leave me behind. How can I be worth your life? The lives of Rutherford and Jones? That's up to you, Malone. We've done our job. Now you do yours. You call me Malone. I don't plan on forgetting you. I won't forget you either. Any of you. In Flanders' fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row that mark our place and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. To bring the, the personal nature home about the First World War, uh, I'd like to recount um, a story from our own family, the Vaughan family, and uh, we come from Newfoundland. Now, my father fought, of course, in the uh, Korean War for two years, was a sergeant there, and he was very reluctant to talk about what happened there, and though, though he, every now and then he would describe some of the nasty business that went on there, and that's something that I can remember an actual soldier talking to me about what happened during a war. As far as the First World War goes, everybody from there, from that time, is basically dead, with rare, rare exception. So it's not so much a remembrance as a memorial. And in our family home in, in, in St. John's, there is on the, on the wall a picture of the Fighting Vaughan brothers, four brothers, Oscar, Frank, Joseph, and Herbert, who went, fought, and as a result of the First World War, died. And there was a display in the Newfoundland Museum of the Fighting Vaughan Brothers, and there's a video that has been put out by the Newfoundland Heritage website called the Fighting Vaughan Brothers. And if people go to YouTube, simply type in the Fighting Vaughan Brothers, um, they will see it. And it's um, a remarkable first-person story, and personal to me, of of what happened then. And you had people 
like the Vaughn brothers going over there. Well, I'll take an example, Joseph, Joseph Vaughn, signed up when he was 16 years old. Of course, they said, you cannot sign up because you're only 16, not 19. But he got a letter from his mother to allow him to fight. He was that passionate about joining. And that, that speaks to something about the lengths to which people are willing to go to, to belong to a movement, to be patriotic, to be nationalistic, if you will, to want to belong. That we had this 16-year-old practicing, carrying a rifle, using a broomstick in the kitchen of his Newfoundland home, wishing to be part of the battle. And he got his wish. And he went over, and he fought in three battles. He was in the uh, infamous battle of Beaumont Hamel, where the 1st Newfoundland Regiment was basically wiped out out of uh, over 800 who went over the ridge that day. Within 30 minutes, only 68 returned roll call the next day. And in that 30 minutes, they were either killed or wounded. And he was one of the wounded, and he went on to um, convalesce in Britain and then came back and joined the war again got um, injured again and went back <laughs> to convalesce and then was sent back to... And he ended up dying uh, in Manchi, manchi le Prou, and um, in France, and his body was never found. And his brothers, Oscar, Frank, and Herbert, they all were part of the Newfoundland uh, regiment that went over there and fought. And it's a story that's in our family and that's not so far removed because we all talked about them. The pictures are on our walls. And so when we think of remembrance, we're not just thinking about, as we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes, the causes of the war, the monarchs, the alliances, the trades, but it comes down to a personal personal thing. Thousands of Newfoundlanders Absolutely. were died during that war, and it was a huge chunk of the male population of our little country. The Dominion of Newfoundland at the time was a dominion just as much as the Dominion of Canada was at the time. And a large part of it was, was, was scarred. And to this day, that scar is still uh, evident. Yes, and, and, and the youth of Europe was sacrificed for causes that they never themselves understood. And in that sense, Europe has never recovered from that. You know, in one battle, Battle of Somme, on one day, 58,000 people were killed, you know. That personal element has been written about, discussed, and has become part of the great literature of that period. Rudyard Kipling, for instance, if I may quote him from one of his poems, there is this couplet which, in a sense, captures all what we are talking about in some sense. This, this is how it goes. This is Kipling. If any question why we died, tell them because our fathers lied. <laughs> there were a whole host of uh, uh, war poets. I mentioned already the Canadian John McRae. There was Wilfred, uh, Sig, uh, Sigfrid Sassoon, Rupert Brooke, Wilfred Owen, Thomas Hardy, D.H. Lawrence, on and on and on. They wrote about it. Some of them laid their lives or, or died during the war. And I want to read a poem here which captures in so many ways the pathos, the tragedy of what happened in that personal sense. This is a poem of Rupert Brooke. Rupert Brooke was 28 years old when he died in 1915 on his way to Dardanellus 
for the Gallipoli campaign. He yes, um, some of my great uncles who actually fought in the Dardanelles. In, yeah. Right, right. But this is a poem he wrote just before he died, and this is this this poem is one of the most remarkable poems from that period. It's called The Soldier, and this is how it goes. If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, a body of England's, breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by sons of home. And think, this heart all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less, gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given. Her sights and sounds, dreams happy as a day, and laughter, learn to friends and gentleness in hearts at peace under an English heaven. Hmm. And he lies buried somewhere in Greece. Life cut short. And he was not alone. There were thousands. And there were thousands not only on English side, or French side, on German side, on Austro-Hungarian side, on Russian side, on Ottoman side. And then all those who came from the empires, Canada, Australia, India, so on and so forth. And, and Salim, you, you mentioned how so many people were fighting the war, didn't really understand all the issues involved in the war. And yet, Robert, you said in your case, even after being injured in one instance, he went back. And what was the motivation if it wasn't an understanding of the war? It, or was there some of that? At the Battle of Beaumont Hamel, which was uh, one of the initial pushes of the Battle of the Somme, he was shot in both legs. Out. <laughs> he goes to, to England, he gets shipped off to England, and then he comes back and um, he was captured by the Germans. And his injuries there, I believe it was a shot in the leg and the arm, were so severe. No, this was um, the other great uncle, um, Herbert, I believe, who was shot in the arm and leg and captured by the Germans. And his Injuries were so severe, they sent him off to convalesce. <laughs> and then he got sent back again. Why, you're asking? Mm-hmm. If you read the newspaper accounts of the time, which I have, the telegram in St. John's, talking about the first 500, there was a rush of people to volunteer in Newfoundland to defend the or go to the empire's aid. And there was a rush and there was a sense of prestige. Two of the great uncles actually were part of that first 500. And that there was a sense of honor. I recall actually sitting in the hospital. My mother was ill and um, my uncle, and he would have been the nephew of these great uncles, Uncle George, he was talking a completely different story. And this was fascinating because he knew these men uh, very intimately. And he thought perhaps that they were copping out by going to war because Newfoundland at the time was desperately poor. And he saw somebody leaving the, the women and the children going off to like, these grand adventures as uh, something less than noble. He thought perhaps they should have stayed and helped 
to um, maintain the family at home rather than going fighting off in this foreign war. And he, he did not have nice words to say about um, the, the, the fighting bonds or anybody who would go to war and leave the family uh, in poverty, uh, which is an interesting perspective. No kidding. That's one I wouldn't have thought of off the top of my head, but it certainly makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, there are so many personal elements to the story that um, are not thought of. But it is it is a retrospective analysis of your That's uncle. That's true. Yeah. On the other hand, the four fighting brothers who did go to war, like hundreds and thousands who went to war, they were driven by a sense of an idealism that made them feel a part of a bigger whole to which they were aligning themselves, to which they were joining forces with. So the empire is bigger than just being in Newfoundland, you it's, know. It's interesting. I asked my father why he went to fight in the uh, Korean War and it had nothing to do with nationalism or belonging to anything. It was an adventure, and there was nothing to do in St. John's, Newfoundland in 1951. And so he actually volunteered for the Second World War when he was 16. They rejected him, just like my great-uncle Joseph, and they gave him a medal for, for volunteering. <laughs> he gave him a World War II volunteer medal for volunteering, but they didn't accept him. So as soon as he got his chance to fight in the Korean War, he upped and went over there for the sense of adventure. So all sorts of things are happening in the mind of a, a young man. We might look back and shrink with horror and talk about it and, you know, how war is devastating and negative. Of course, modern war has become. It is crazy. I mean, that's what was called mutual assured destruction, you know. So war had lost that sense that had been there I suppose, until the Great War. And then the Great War becomes the war of technology. It is not the war of the soldiers, but the war of the scientists. And the soldiers are simply the ones who are executing what the scientists have worked out. I guess you could say World War I didn't end, but paused in 1918 before it picked up again in 1939, which is what we'll be talking about next week on the show with Salim Mansour. So be sure to join us again then when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. General Kamloy, it is an honor and a privilege to have you here at Stalag 13. We welcome the opportunity to offer you our simple but uh, sincere hospitality. General, what is it? Are my eyes deceiving me? Oh, no, it couldn't be. That uh, sergeant standing over there. You mean Schultz? It is! Hans! Ah, can it be? <laughs> Ach, du liebe! <laughs> Lieutenant Kamloff! Oh, my old Well, Germany makes lots of mistakes. No mistake. You were always a very bright boy. We fought together in the first war, in the Ardennes and at Liège. I was just a young lieutenant. I didn't know anything at all. Schultz saved my life. It was a pleasure, a general. Charming. Yes, charming. <laughs> nice to see two old monsters get together. <laughs> and here we are, Hans, two German soldiers fighting another war. 
keeps us out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs>